Okay, Psalm 34. And you see in the heading that it mentions a Psalm of David when he feigned madness before Abimelech who drove him away and he departed. And we'll talk more about that incident in just a moment. But that is the heading. Let's read through. It's difficult to divide the psalm. Some put verses 8 through 14 together. We'll stop at verse 10, though, right now. And Psalm 34, 1 through 10. After that introduction, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord, and the humble shall hear and rejoice. O magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and he delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him and were radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. The poor man cried, this poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encounters around those who fear him, and he rescues them. Verse 8, O taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who want, uh, who fear him, there is no want. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. Okay. Now, this psalm has some characteristics of a wisdom psalm, or excuse me, of a praise psalm or of a thanksgiving psalm. It begins that way. When we get to verse 11, we'll see it has characteristics of a wisdom psalm, which is teaching largely uh, and teaching about subjects like fear of the Lord. But uh, in the heading, a psalm of David when he feigned madness before Abimelech. Remember about 13 or 14 of these headings to the Psalms refer to specific incidences in the life of David. And this refers to an incident in 1 Samuel 21 verses 10 through 15. And David was before the king of the Philistines. And they said, isn't this the David they sang about? that Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. And so David is afraid. He acts like he is insane, and the saliva runs down his beard. And the king says, I have enough crazy men here already. Get rid of him. I don't need one more. And runs him out from his presence. Now, there is a difficulty between that event and this heading. Did you pick up on what that was? I didn't mention it in my retelling there. That passage in 1 Samuel calls the king Achish. Doesn't call him Abimelech as you see here. By the way, this there's some similarities between this heading and 
Psalm 56. Psalm 56, uh, for the choir director, and mentioned some other musical notes, it seems, but it says, when the Philistines seized him in Gath. And, but Abimelech may have been a name in the dynasty of these rulers, just like the name Pharaoh was in Egypt. You do see that name in Genesis 20, in Genesis 26, when Abraham uh, and Isaac are dealing with an Abimelech from that particular area. And so it may have been a dynastic name. Now, let me ask you, though, when you read Psalm 34, let's say the heading wasn't there. You read Psalm 34. Would you even think of this event in any shape, form, or fashion as you read this psalm. Without that heading, you wouldn't. Now, what some people will do with that is some people will make the statement, well, that shows these headings were added later and are of little historical value. But what can also be done with that is to say that heading, that title, is action. Because why would, have a later, why would a later writer have added that heading? Because there's no connection between the events except this. And so I think it's a stronger argument for accepting the heading as authentic, as being a part of the original text, uh, instead of an argument to dismiss with the heading. I want you to look as we go throughout Psalm 34 for how the righteous are described. One of the words is going to be that word righteous that I just used. But like they will be described as humble in verse 2. Humble. In verse 6, this poor man cried. They're humble. They're poor. What does it mean to be humble? Well, humble, one thing, is not to call attention to yourself. Praise is inherently an act of humility. Praise of God is an act of humility because it is calling attention away from ourselves and putting the focus of our eyes on Him. So it is an act of humility. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul or I shall make my boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear it and rejoice. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. He speaks in verse 2 of boasting in God. In verse 3 of magnifying God. In verse 3 of exalting God. So while he is boasting in God, he boasts in God, he magnifies God, he exalts God. He is calling attention to his greatness and not to his own. And he is going to do this in verse 1. I bless the Lord at all times. In verse 1, his praise shall continually be in my mouth. At all times, he will bless the Lord. Continually, he will praise God. 
And what he relates in this psalm, and you'll particularly see this in verses 4 through 7, he relates his experience of his need, of how he was in crisis, and the Lord delivered him, and he is sharing that with others, sharing them to join him in praise, and sharing, calling on them to join him in putting their trust in God, to put their trust in him. Verse 4, I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and he delivered me from all my fears. Now this word salt in verse 4 is going to be used in verse 10. The same Hebrew word of, again, both of those references will be to seeking the Lord. That same word will be used then in verse 14 when the Bible says to seek peace and Pursue it. It's actually the second word, pursue, that is this particular word, uh, same word translated uh, seek or seek the Lord. David sought the Lord. He encourages those who seek the Lord will not lack any good thing. And then he encourages us to pursue, seek for peace. But here in this particular passage, I sought the Lord. I sought the Lord. And he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. He is beginning to relate his personal experience, a word that many people would use today, his personal testimony. But he is just relating what the Lord has done. He's relating this as an encouragement to others to praise the Lord, as an encouragement for others to put their trust in the Lord. I saw him... And he answered, and he delivered me from all my fears. Now the word fear is going to be a key word in this psalm. The word fear, in the sense of fearing the Lord, is going to be used in verse 7, twice in verse 9, and then in verse 11. Now, I want you to understand the word fear in these verses is different than the word fear here. This word for fear has more of the sense of dread or terror to it. He delivered me from all my fears. I sought the Lord and He delivered me. He answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. And he says, they looked to him and were radiant. Now, look at your translations. Because some versions, some, some were arguing that that should be translated as an imperative. In other words, look to the Lord and be radiant. Um, and it's different based on vowel point. Do any of your translations indicate it that way? Here he just says, I look to the Lord. Do any of your translations indicate that as an imperative, a command? Okay. Yes, he says those who look. Those who look. Those who look. But, but it says, they looked to him and they were radiant. They were radiant. And their faces will never be ashamed. Now, when, when I read that, they were radiant, what do y'all think of 
the Bible somebody's face who's radiant Moses yes Moses' face was glowing. Just a problem. The only problem. It may be the same idea. It's not the same word. No, that's the difficulty. This word radiant is only used one other time in the Old Testament. But it's a pretty interesting context. It is in Isaiah 60 and verse 5. Now, I say Isaiah 60 verse 5. And so that doesn't probably ring a bell with you immediately. But let me read the verse before it, and I think you'll get something of the meaning of this word. In Isaiah 60, verse 4, this is addressed to to Zion. The glory of God is going to shine on this city. And it says, Lift up your eyes round about and see. They will all gather together. They will come to you. Your sons will come from afar. Your daughters will be carried in the arms. Then you will see and be radiant. And your heart will thrill and rejoice. The point. This is used of the city when it sees her sons and daughters coming back home. What is the joy that a parent feels at seeing their child come back home? That's the context in which this word is used. And this text is telling us that those who seek the Lord and those who look to the Lord, they're going to be radiant. They're going to have this blessing, a joy that is comparable to a parent who sees their child coming home. Does that mean that 24-7 we wear around a smile? Not necessarily. Uh, the old vacation Bible school song, which I never led when I'm teaching vacation, it isn't any trouble, just a S-M-I-L-E, because I don't see that emphasis in the Bible. All your troubles will vanish like a bubble if you only take the time to S-M-I-L-E. Well, I always found that to be the truth. But... But there is a radiance that comes to those who seek the Lord and those who look to the Lord uh, and their faces will not be put to shame. And he says, this poor man cried and the Lord heard him. Now, the word poor in verse 6 is the same word, same Word used translated humble in verse 2. So really the humble, the poor, same, same class of people. But he's identifying himself here. He says, this poor man cried and the Lord heard him. Over and over in this psalm, God's people in times of distress are going to cry to God. God hears And God answers. In verse 4, I sought the Lord and he answered me. In verse 6, this poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and he rescues them. Again, fearing the Lord, a key thought in Psalm 34. It's going to be, this word's going to be used four times. It was also used a couple of times in Psalm 33. Psalm 33 verse 8, Psalm 33 and verse 18. Fear the Lord. 
But here, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear Him. Now, angels are mentioned a few times in Psalms. Uh, You remember that the devil quotes from Psalm 91, He will give His angels charge concerning you, lest you bear your foot or strike your foot against the stone. But the phrase, the angel of the Lord, is only used twice in the Psalms. The next time, interestingly, it's used is in the next chapter. Look at Psalm 35, verse 6. Let their way be dark and slippery with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. So, two references in Psalms, the angel of the Lord. And I apologize that I write everywhere. Angel of the Lord, 34, 7, and 35, 6. In 34, 7, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. The angel of the Lord is protecting his people, God's people. In 35.6, the angel of the Lord is chasing, pursuing, and hounding the enemies of God. So the angel of the Lord is pictured in Psalms as protecting and defending God's people and bringing judgment upon those who are wicked. And that pretty much fits with how the angel of the Lord is pictured throughout all Scripture. Remember this scene. Who is this? What character am I describing? He sees a man with a drawn hand, a drawn sword in his hand. He asks, are you for us or are you for our enemies? And he said, neither. But I'm a cap- army of the captain of the Lord of hosts. Take off your sandals for the place you stand is holy ground. You know who it is, Evelyn? Who? Joshua. Joshua. Very good. Joshua 5, verses 15, or 13 through 15. So yes, uh, there the angel of the Lord is fighting for the servants of God as they are going in to take the land of Canaan. Okay? Where do you find this instant? Where um, an angel of the Lord killed 185,000 in the night. Where is that recorded? Okay, it's Isaiah 37. Uh, we're about verse 36 where you see uh, that in the days of Hezekiah. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. You remember the incident. I love this story. I love this story. Where, and we're just picking up on the tail end of the story. But... King of King of Aram has sent a whole host of chariots and soldiers to Dothan to arrest Elijah, Elisha. And the Bible says that the servant looks out one morning and there there are chariots and horses of fire. And he says, My master. And Elisha says, Don't be afraid. For those who are for us are more and those who are for them. And he opened his eyes. He said, Lord, open his eyes. And he saw chariots and horses of fire all around them. The angel of the Lord 
in camps around those who fear him and rescues them. Those who are for us are more than those who are for them. <coughs> Any thoughts right there? Let's go verse 8. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And by the way, that word good is going to be key throughout this psalm. It's going to be used about four times. Um, verse 10, verse 12, verse 14, I believe, are the others. But here it describes God. Taste and see the Lord is good. Remember a couple of weeks ago I preached on Psalm 107. The Lord is good. His loving kindness is everlasting. That's the way many of the Psalms begin. And here, taste and see the Lord is good. How blessed is the person who takes refuge in Him. Oh, fear the Lord. So we take refuge in the Lord. We fear the Lord. Verse 9, fear the Lord, you His saints. For those who fear Him, there is no want. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. So, fear the Lord, and those who do fear the Lord are said to suffer no want. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. In Psalm 23, 1. Uh, the Bible says in Psalm uh, 84 and verse 11. 84 in verse 11. The text says, The Lord is a sun and a shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. No good thing does he withhold. So, Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. In those who fear him, there is no want. Young lions do lack and suffer hunger. But they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. Now, we have seen to this point in the book of Psalms that lions are sometimes used as a description of the wicked. Um, we see this in Psalm 7, verse 1 and 2, where David says he takes refuge in God. Save me from all who pursue me, who deliver me, uh, who pursue me and deliver me, or he will tear my soul like a lion. Psalm 10 and verse uh, 9, the Bible says he lurks in hiding places like a lion. Uh, you, so you see, and then Psalm 17, I think, uses the same picture, uh, 17 in verse 12. It talks about the wicked will tear uh, like a lion that is eager to tear as a young lion lurking in hiding places. The lion sometimes is used as a picture of those who are wicked. One, some writers say that lions were used in the ancient Near East as a symbol of arrogance, as a symbol of a lack of dependence on God, not just in the Bible, but in ancient Near East in general. Why would that be the case? Why would you use a lion as a symbol of that? 
Well, they're strong. Okay. And and thus they're also self-sufficient. Yes. Lions, we call them the king of bees. Now, I, I don't know if that's really true. I don't know if you see a, a lion and a hippo in a battle who I would you know, think would come from for that victorious. But but that's close to the truth, isn't it? I mean, if it's not the top of the ladder, that's close. Okay, what kind of lions do you suppose would be the best hunters? Young ones, don't you? He mentions the young lion specifically here. This is the ultimate in self-sufficiency. This is the ultimate in being able to provide for yourself. But even these creatures, the lions and the young lions, will lack and suffer hunger. While those who seek the Lord will not be in want of any good thing. It's kind of like Isaiah 40, verses 30 and 31. When the, the young person stumble and the vigorous young men fall, but those who wait upon the Lord will gain new strength. And the strongest and the most powerful are falling in situations where the servant of God is able to stand. It's the same situation here. The young lions lack and suffer hunger, but those who seek the Lord will not like any good thing. One of the questions we want to ask later, but it's suggested by this wording. Does this psalm promise too much? That they will not lack any good thing? Just, just think about it right now. Any, any questions on 1 through 10 or any ideas there that we ought to, anything that we ought to deal with that we haven't? Verses 11 through, let me just read 11 through 16. Come you children, listen to me, and I will tell you the fear of the Lord. Who is the man who desires life and loves length of days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against evildoers. To cut off the memory of them from the earth. Now, let's suppose you were just reading those verses. Your Bible flew open those verses and you didn't even pay attention to what's at the top. What book it was. What book would you think that you just read from? I, mean, this is, I know this is somewhat subjective. But what book does that most sound like? Okay, Leanne said it there. You said it loud. It does sound like Proverbs to be. Now, I've written down about four reasons why this sounds like Proverbs. Four reasons, all of which will be on your test 
on <laughs> Psalm 34. But Psalm 34, 11 through 16, he addresses this to children, and that would be more literally translated, sons. Do you remember a proverb starts out and says, uh, my son, over and over, in 2-1, and then in some cases it says, my sons, but, but other times it says, son. So here, the children, or the sons, are addressed. Also, he's going to teach them the fear of the Lord. In Proverbs 1-7, Bob, you told that recently, what does it tell us about uh, Proverbs, the uh, what place does the fear of the Lord play? It's beginning of knowledge, beginning of wisdom, beginning of knowledge, right here in Proverbs one seven. So it's the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is a big theme in the book of Proverbs. Now, also uh, in this text, it promises in verse twelve length of days and Proverbs often promises long life to those who follow in its words. Long life is promised in passages like Proverbs 3 2 and Proverbs of 3 and verse 16. And then it talks about restraining the tongue. Now, all of these are things that sound a lot like the book of Proverbs. A lot like the book of Proverbs. And, by the way, this is the only... You find that address from fathers to children, fathers to sons, often in Proverbs. This is the only time, the only time you find it in the book of Psalms. So, I mean, that kind of highlights... And this is what we mean by a wisdom psalm. Some call them wisdom. Some call them didactic psalms. Didactic just refers to teaching. And the point is, he is teaching them about fearing God. Teaching them about fear of the Lord. So come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. And who is this person who desires life and loves length of days? that he may see good. Uh, who, who is the person who wants to have a good life? Now, there might be all kinds of answers to that question. What does it mean to have a good life? What does it take to have a good life? Well, a lot of it depends on what you're going to interpret as a good life. But this is the way the Bible interprets it. Some things you need to do to have a good life is to keep your tongue from evil. Now, I state that is a profound theme in the book of Proverbs. And Proverbs brings up the tongue over and over and over again. But we've seen a little bit of that in the Psalms too, haven't we? In Psalm 15, which talked about the characteristics of the one who would dwell on God's holy hill, in Psalm 15, verse 3, he does not slander with his tongue. He doesn't do evil to his neighbor. He doesn't take up a reproach against his friend. <clears throat> he doesn't slander with his tongue, doesn't speak do evil to a neighbor, doesn't take up a reproach to his friend. If you want to live a good life and see good days, watch what you say. 
Watch what you say. I still remember pretty vividly. This was my last year of college and someone that I really didn't know that well. And I realized why she had she came up to me and said this afterwards, but she comes running up to me and she said, I heard what you said about me and, and originally my heart kind of sunk. Oh, oh no. What did I say? And she said, I heard what you said and I really appreciated it. And then I realized what I had said about her, why I had said it about her. But if everybody I have ever said something about came running up to me and said that, <laughs> would have had more people that were delivering bad news or good news. If you want to have a good life, you want to keep yourself out of trouble, watch what you say. Keep your tongue from evil, your lips from speaking deceit. And depart from evil, depart from sin, and do good. If you want to have a good life, do good. I, I said that the word good is really key in this. In verse 8, it describes the character of God. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Then it describes how we act in verse 14. We depart from evil and we do good. But in verses 10 and 12, it talks about the blessing that this good God gives us for walking in the way that is good. The Bible tells us we will not want any good thing. And in verse 12, we will see good. So the good God, if we do good will bless us with good things, will lack no good things, and we will see what's good. And one of the reasons is because of the presence of God Himself. The reason is because of the presence of God Himself. We watch what we say, we depart from evil, we seek, we do good, we seek peace and pursue it in a world of warfare, in a world of strife, in a world of conflict, we seek peace and we pursue it because the eyes of God are toward the righteous, His ears are open to their prayers. This is an anthropomorphic expression of God and which means to describe God with human characteristics, with eyes, with ears, with a face, um, all of these used. but. His eyes are toward the righteous. There is no problem the righteous has that his eyes cannot see. And there is no cry that the righteous utter that he is deaf to. His eyes are open toward the righteous. His ears are open to their cries. But his face is against evildoers. Verse 14 called us to depart from evil. Verse 16 says his face is against the evildoer. It's against it. So God's face turned toward us, receptive to our cries, looking over our situation, or is his face set against us to cut off the memory of them Cut off the memory of them from the earth.
You recognize that passage is quoted in the New Testament? I'll try to get to that in a moment. It's quoted in 1 Peter 3. I don't know if our outline breaks this up at the best spot. But in verse 17, the righteous cry and the Lord hears and delivers him out of all their troubles. The Lord is near the brokenhearted and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. So, the righteous cry, the righteous is in italics, but they cry, God hears. Over and over, God hears the cry. In verse 4, I sought the Lord and he answered me. In verse 6, the poor man cried and the Lord heard him. In verse 15, his ears are toward the right his, his eyes are toward the righteous, his ears are open to their cry. But now in verse 17, he cries, the Lord hears. The Lord hears, the Lord delivers him out of his trouble. Same kind of idea expressed in verse 4. He delivered me from all my fears. In verse 6, he saved me from all my troubles. In verse 7, the angel of the Lord rescues us. The righteous cry and the Lord hears. And it's interesting there. One writer made this comment that I thought was interesting. It doesn't say anything about the prayer being all that eloquent he just talks about them crying out to him. They're looking in his direction. They are begging his help. And he cries. And the Lord hears. And the Lord delivers him from his trouble. And God is near the brokenhearted. And saves those who are crushed in spirit. Psalm 51 Verse 16 and 17. It's in David's prayer of confession. You do not delight in sacrifices, otherwise I would give it. You're not pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. God is near to the brokenhearted. In Isaiah 61, Jesus, this is quoted, of Je, quoted by Jesus later, but Isaiah 61, it says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. It's anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to bind up the brokenhearted. You know, before tonight, most of you were here and so and Bob gave me we received this letter a couple of a person asking for a couple of more Bibles uh, for their mother and uh, somebody else in the family but they said they had gotten a Bible from us uh, a few weeks ago when we did that I remember Ed Harrell saying that when he was at the University of Arkansas I think Steve uh, 
Cawthon was the regular preacher there. He said they would target a zip code and they would send to everybody in a zip code a correspondence course. And he said we sent out a few thousand and we get just a handful by. And he said we tried again about a year of same zip code. And he said we get another handful by. And he said but the people we got it from was, were always different. He said, you know what it changed? Then almost every time we got back correspondence course, someone had just been through some great trial in their life. Maybe their wife or husband left. Maybe they died. Maybe their son or daughter died. to realize there are going to be moments in life when even some of the people who are most hardened may have a short window of opportunity that they might listen. And it often ties to this. It often ties to the fact they're broken hearted and they're crushed in spirit. And in a certain sense, God rejoices in that, not in our pain, but He does rejoice when His children reach out to Him and recognize their dependence upon Him. When we recognize how weak we are and how mighty He is, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted he saves those who are crushed in spirit. Verse 19. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. Now, that's clear to us. When we're told earlier that those who seek the Lord will not be in want of any good thing does not mean we'll never have a trouble, never have a difficulty never have any kind of a problem. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. If that wasn't true, how could it be said that these righteous people are saved from all their troubles in verse 6 and in verse 17? Our life may have difficulties, may have troubles, but the Lord will deliver them out of, out of all of them. He will, keep, he will keep all our bones and will not allow any to be broken. We want to come back to that. He makes this strong contrast between the evil and the righteous, the wicked and the righteous, in verses 21 and 22. Evil will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. But this same word condemned used in verse 21 is also going to be used in verse 22. But in verse 22... It says, the Lord redeems the soul of his servants and none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. None will be condemned. The wicked in verse 21 will be condemned. The righteous in verse 22, none of these, none of these who take refuge in him will be condemned. By the way, who is the righteous in this psalm? 
The righteous is the one who takes refuge in God in verse 22. The righteous is the one who seeks God in verse 4 and verse 10. The righteous is the one who does good in verse 14 and turns away from evil, who seeks peace. And these righteous people, in the words of this psalm, will be delivered from their crisis. Now, anything that we should have touched on that we didn't? John? So in uh, 11 through 14, you, you made the connection that 13 and 14 describes the one who desires life uh, and loves length of days. Would it also connect to 11, uh, the one who fears the Lord? Oh, yes, yes. Fear of the Lord front and center in all this um, yeah. psalm. Um, said four times that particular word for fear is used. This is the last time that's used. But yes, fear of the Lord is part of that description of the godly person. Also verse 18, you see a lot of parallels maybe to like the Beatitudes. Yes, absolutely. And absolutely. You know, that's not a that's probably not a popular message with the world. Yeah. Somebody pointed out that the self hurt section of the bookstore isn't very big. <laughs> self hurt. <laughs> well, um, yes, I know what you're saying. I know that's a good that's a good way to say it too. G. G. K. Chesterton said Christianity has not been trapped tried and found wanting it has been found difficult and not tried yes and i think all this kind of paints the picture that following god is not necessarily easy yes absolutely absolutely now uh those are very good comments and you know i i would add to that this though john I do think we need to emphasize to people, particularly young people, that Christianity is not always easier. As one preacher said when I was being raised, it's not a bed of roses. I wonder if that was a country song or I, it may have been. Uh, uh, never promised you a rose garden. That was the song. And he sometimes make reference to that. Um, I think we do need to say that sometimes to young people. But I won't tell you. If you live a life in reckless disregard of God, you're going to have a lot of problems too. I, that's life. I, I sometimes wonder why you see these people that have horrible lives that it, by their own admission, and they they just they you know everything's terrible, and then they rejoice. At the birth of a child. What? You don't think these same things are going to be repeated here? You know, and, and, and I'm not I'm not trying to minimize that that is a moment of joy. I, I know that by experience. But I am saying, I think you get the idea that that life is difficult for all of us. And Rejecting God isn't going to make your problems go away. That just means you don't have any answer to your problems. You know, basically, is the bottom line. But 
Let's look at John 19. Psalm 34 verse 20. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Not one of them is broken. Now, anybody here ever broken a bone? Okay. Marcus, Marcus raised his hand proudly. Micah, Susie, I know somebody else is. Uh, they broke one recently. Uh, but obviously you people need to repent. Because if you are a servant, not one of those bones is going to be broken. Yeah. I wouldn't even think about taking that statement literally. This is obviously a figurative statement, isn't it? It is a figurative statement. Even that figurative poetic statement of God's protection was fulfilled literally in Jesus. It was fulfilled literally in Christ. Look at John 19. John 19 verses... 33 through 36. And let's see what the text says. Someone who gets there first can read it. John 19, 33 through 36. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately there came out blood and water. And he who has, has seen has borne witness, and his witness is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth, so that you also may believe. For these things came to pass, that the scripture might be fulfilled, not a bone of him shall be broken. Okay. Not a bone of him shall be broken. Now, I think a lot is going on there. A lot. Like, Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of the Passover lamb. In... Um, Exodus 12, 46 and Numbers 9, verse 12 not a bone of the Passover lamb was broken. And I think this is showing us Jesus was a fulfillment of that image. Uh, he is, as John calls him in John 1, 29 the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the fulfillment of Passover lamb. But also, he is a fulfillment of the righteous sufferer or the innocent sufferer of Psalms. Because Psalm 34.20 is also in play. Psalm 34.20. Many are the... He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. So Jesus is the fulfillment of the Passover lamb. He is the fulfillment of the righteous sufferer in Psalms. Both of these images find fulfillment in him. Now, uh, looking, uh, thinking about that just a second. I think that's really powerful when we think about Psalm 34 used in this context. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them from them, from them all. Um, when we were living in Middle Tennessee, before we moved to Florida, 
There was a man in the congregation. <coughs> I do not mean this at all to be disrespectful of him. When he passed away, though, he was 49 years old. You would have looked at him and said, you, you, would, you would have believed it if we would have said he was 69 or 70. You would have. I was stunned when he told me his age. He was the only one in his family that went to church. And I'm not remembering all the details of that. But he never did miss. He never missed. And he was the first one there. All the time. He had had all the time we knew him. He was about 10 years. He had never been able to work. He was on disability and he couldn't do much, couldn't move very well. But he had had one health problem after another. And um, he, um, he had at one point been on dialysis and come off of it. And I said, uh, I said, Charles, I don't know that I've ever heard of that. He said, well, my doctors told me they hadn't either. That somebody had been on dialysis and come off of it. But it seemed like all these things, and he had a cancer, a, a bizarre form of cancer, that there were really only a handful of cases that they had history on. And somehow, he beat that, even though the doctors didn't know what they were doing. And he'd come through all of this. But I remember one day, it was a cold, cold day, because I can remember where he was. Because he had actually come, we had, we, our car, uh, we'd slid on the ice, we bumped the car, we left the car at someone's house, and had to, and they called the church building, he came and picked us up, and, He's talking to us on the way to church because he knew he'd be the first one there. And uh, he says, I think my cancer's coming back. And, um, and it was. And like I said, he was 49 when he died. Did God not keep his promises to him? Because it seemed like every time he turned the corner... He had a moment to catch his breath and to rejoice and then got slapped back down again. Or is it that Jesus expands the meaning of this psalm to show us that even if we do die, the Lord will deliver us from the Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord will deliver us from them all. He keeps all his bones and will not allow one of them to be broken. The Jesus through this shows us this, this deals with not just deliverance from trials in this life but ultimately overcoming the greatest foe of all, death itself. And to me that's powerful. And with that Every other thing 
really in this psalm, we, we could go back line by line and maybe see how every line is enlightened by John's use of that in John 19. But, but particularly that statement, taste and see that the Lord is good in verse 8, that is quoted in 1 Peter 2 and verse 3. Something it's also mentioned in Hebrews 5, Hebrews 6, those who have tasted the good word of God. It's mentioned in Hebrews 6, 5, but definitely in, in 1 Peter 2. In, in 34, uh, verses um, 12 through 16, who is a man who desires life, loves life to see good days? That is quoted in 1 Peter 3. Now, in 1 Peter 3, verses 10 through 12. Now, I, I want to tell you what's interesting about all this connection with Jesus' resurrection. In this context of 1 Peter deals with this psalm, mentions this psalm twice. He quotes this psalm, makes reference to this psalm twice. 1 Peter has suffering all through it. There is some reference to suffering in every single chapter of 1 Peter. I mean, it, is, it is a passage where they have suffered and they are going to suffer. Don't be surprised at the fiery trial which is about to or take to, to take you within a few years of writing that Peter was probably executed. But isn't it interesting? That in the midst of their troubled times, he tells them, taste and see that the Lord is good. He tells them if they want to love life and see good days, they must refrain their tongue from evil and his lips from speaking guile. They must pursue, they must uh, turn from evil and do good and choose peace and pursue it or seek peace and pursue it. When these Christians are living in their troubled times, they act like the people in Psalm 34 in their troubled time. And they are also, if they suffer, and they suffer even to death, they find out none of their bones will be broken. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them all. Delivers them from, from them all. He keeps all his bones and will not allow one to be broken. Jesus gives a deeper meaning to this particular psalm by his resurrection. And the words encourage us as Christians that even if we experience the severe, the most extreme penalty for following Jesus, and God help us if we do, help us to cling to him because we will be richly rewarded remember our word condemnation to those who are in Christ there is no condemnation verse 21 22 those who take refuge in him none of them will be condemned just some thoughts that I hope will help you with that psalm anything else Verses 11 through 14, <clears throat> the emphasis on the tongue.
probably fits the setting of the heading of the psalm with David and how he behaved. That's right. It may, it may, uh, yes, that's right. David's experience in 1 Samuel 21. Lips speaking deceit. Yes, yeah. It, it may not be always, I mean, maybe after the moment he realized, <coughs> I didn't deal with that the best way, mm-hmm. you know. So that's right. In verse 14, depart from evil and do good. Is that the same word as in the title, and he departed? Okay. Good question that I have not looked up. Um, the word in the heading can actually mean to, dro- to drive away. My and sense, who drove him away and he departed. Okay, drove him away and he left. No, it is not the same term. It is not the same term. Um, the word used in the heading, it could be depart, it could be go, it could be went. It could be just a simple word like that, but um, yes, but um, but but good question, good question, then. Bob, not thought this out a whole lot, but this psalm seems to emphasize the fact that life happens to all of us, whether we be righteous or wicked. The Lord sends the sun and the rain on the just and the unjust. But the differentiation made in this psalm is the presence of God and the absence of God. Absolutely. Not only the absence of God, but God. He sets his face against the wicked. So, yeah. obviously, you know, we we've can be, say, oh, you don't want to live that life. That's, that's a hard life. Yeah. You know, that's probably not accurate. Yeah. You know, but, but there's truth in it. Yeah. Uh, this psalm really uh, uh, shines a light on the aspect that we're all here uh, living life and it's best to do it uh, with with God's countenance shining on us. Yes, exactly. Life is hard whether you're righteous or wicked as, as we said, as Bob <clears throat> was kind of saying there too. Uh, there are times in human history, this is not always in all places, but there are times in human history when being a Christian may make you a marked person. And I think First Peter was one of those times. But even then, as Bob states, the Lord is with us. He's blessing us. It's a matter, ultimately, it's not a matter, we're not going to escape all troubles either way, but it's a matter of whether or not the Lord's face is shining upon us or whether the Lord's turned His face against us. And where could we go but to the Lord in the midst of troubles, in the midst of crisis? One of the commentators here, Marie, we can't remember which one it was, but he said the idea of the, the Lord setting his face, we need to think about that. The Lord, uh, to to look at you adversarially. Oh, yeah, you know, absolutely. Uh, with hostility, because uh, God hates the sin that yes. we execute in our lives. Absolutely. To set your face against them. Mm. Terrible thing. Well, thank you guys. Lord willing, next time we have an imprecatory prayer. whole psalm is about calling down curses upon uh, the wicked. Is that legitimate today? Is that much of your prayer life? Do you need to increase your imprecatory prayer time? Uh, we'll, we'll, but...
do they have a place in our life? We want to try to look at what the text says and then try to deal with that. Mark, would you want to lead us in prayer? Heavenly Father, we're thankful to you for the psalm and the study. We're thankful for the good thoughts that are presented tonight. And help us to keep these in our hearts and minds and and to realize that you are our uh, deliverer and that we desire always desire your favor and help us to fear you and keep your commands so, so that we can have your favor. Thank you for the confidence that we have in your word. Thankful for this study. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Okay. Uh, who's going to be at lead our song here? Again, we're going to need to cut this off right afterwards. But oh, well. Okay. <coughs> Does anybody need a song? Does not have one? Take another one. There, there are verses on the back. <clears throat> I don't know about you, but I saw a lot of song connections in this psalm, songs that we sing. Someone pointed out a connection uh, to verse 7, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them and, and pointed to this wording in a song. This is my father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler. Yeah, I like that. <clears throat> Our fellowship is the... Uh, tune uh, song to these words of Psalm 34. We'll sing all seven verses. Though at all times I will bless the Lord in praise my mouth Lord from him declare 
<laughs> well, you see here, you sang the first line of each stanza, so yeah, I tried that on the back and it didn't work quite right. <laughs> there were four stanzas though. Did you? Where I dropped. Recorded. Yeah. Appreciate it. Where I dropped.